You're the average of the five podcast shows you listen to the most. Learn to run your business well with the SIA Business Show, where our host Sayyid Irfan Ajmal interviews entrepreneurs, marketers, and speakers of all colors and creeds, revealing their biggest secrets and lousiest mistakes. Hi everyone this is Sayed Irfan Ajmal your host at the SIA Business Podcast our guest today is Jason Forrest he is the CEO of Forrest Performance Group it is a leadership and sales training company which was named as one of America's best workplaces for 2017 by none other than Inc magazine Jason is also an award-winning speaker and published author. He has in fact written quite a few books. He is also a certified NLP master practitioner and he is on a mission to convince every person that they are enough, that they are talented, that they have everything they need to become successful. He does so by reprogramming their mindset so as to remove any mental blocks or mental leashes as Jason likes to call them. so any kind of mental blocks any kind of programming which is holding those people back from becoming a better version of themselves while studying jason's profile online i checked out some of his previous podcast interviews and training videos and i can assure our listeners that jason's bold unorthodox and game changing mental toughness strategies will surely leave an impact on you and they are going to impact your future growth and success Jason's most recent book The Mindset of a Sales Warrior contains 42 strategies that unleash human performance through transformational mental models. Last but not least, Jason has also built quite a bit of a following on social media and he has over 1 million followers on Facebook. So let's talk to Jason and discuss sales mindset training, writing and more. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. I look forward to having a conversation with you. Same here. So tell me a bit about yourself, Jason. I mean, why sales? As you often mention in your interviews and videos, it's unfortunately not the first choice of almost anyone. So why sales? Well, I mean, if you think about it, the best salespeople are protectors of the customer's interest as well as their advocates for the company's value that they're serving. And so, you know, there are really two problems in business. There are sales problems and then there are all the other problems. And the biggest complaint that you hear from any entrepreneur, any business owner, I don't care how big or small you are, is that they need more profitable sales. They need yeah. they need people to see the value in the product or service that they're presenting and they need more people to to choose it, to to buy it. You know, so to me sales is everything. It's it's the lifeblood of the world. And so the problem is is that sales has always gotten a bad rap. Hmm. But that's just because that's just because people aren't taught how to do it nobly. They're not taught how to do it ethically or with integrity or honestly. And at the same time, you know, more people will have a sales job in their life than any other single job. So hmm. more people will have a sales job, but yet less than 3% of colleges teach people how to sell successfully. So, 
you know, to me, there's this kind of perfect storm for, you know, no wonder why the consumer has a negative connotation around salespeople, because we're not putting, we're not putting the education towards it. Yeah, absolutely. And do you agree that, I mean, sales, even if one's title is not officially, you know, salesperson or account manager or business developer, even then we are, we are doing sales in some form or another in our lives every single day, because we are trying to convince someone to do something, you know, whether it's convincing your wife to, you know, go to a specific location for vacations or whether, you know, convincing someone at your company why plan A is better than plan D, right? That's correct. I mean, everyone is in sales. I mean, the, your kids are always trying to sell you on their ideas. A teacher is trying to sell a student on their ideas. A leader is trying to sell their employees on an idea. I mean, everyone is in sales in some form or fashion because, mm -hmm. you know, our definition of selling is to give certainty plus education with rapport. Well, rapport is just being on the same page with someone. So knowing what specifically is their outcome, what is their goals, what are they trying to you know, move towards? So what life improvement are they wanting to move towards? What pain are they trying to move away from? And then certainty is just giving people you know, that emotional feeling of safety and security that whatever you're selling is going to benefit them and help them achieve their goal. And the education is just the evidence to back up your claim. And so, you know, everyone needs that. Everyone, everyone's trying to find certainty. Everyone needs education to back it up. And we just have to, do, again, learn how to do it with a noble fashion. Right, right. And uh, I do agree that sales has unfortunately been getting a lot of bad rep over the years or even decades. One of my first jobs was actually in sales and I was a corporate sales executive and I could not do it for longer than six months. This was way back when I just graduated in Sweden. And I think the kind of sales, the reason I'm telling you this is that I just wonder if you think that the kind of sales we were doing were the right kind or not, because I was not happy with that. I do think that I also had my own problems, like not having enough confidence and, you know, telling myself false stories and all that, which I think you talk about in your book and your trainings and everything. But like, you know, to be very honest, we would be trying to deceive the gatekeepers of, you know, top CEOs and marketing, you know, VPs and all that of Fortune 1000 companies, we would, you know, tell them some kind of a story so as to get the phone number of the, you know, the top guys, and then we will go on on that call. And another thing that we would do is that, you know, we would always be told to apply urgency. And that seemed very fake, you know, because if we were selling, you know, like a corporate hospitality package for like a football tournament, which was, you know, one year away, and we kind of knew that this is fake. I mean, we actually knew that this is fake because, you know, we would be asked to tell that, oh, you know, just 10 packages are remaining and all that. And you have to sign up by the end of the day today. So, you know, that's, I think the reason I'm telling you is that I think that's where many people get this negative opinion about sales. Yeah, you're correct on that. And I'm, look, I, I don't know exactly how you guys were trained to do it, but hmm. the difference between persuasion and manipulation is intent. And so what's tough for people is that the same techniques that a person would use to sell someone or persuade someone to do something that would benefit them and benefit their company, you know, are the same mm. techniques that someone would use to manipulate someone. The techniques mm. are the same. Yeah. The difference is the intent. And so, intent. you know, if, right. if, if you're, you know, if your companies, if you were told to do something before you really understood the customer's mission, what they were trying to accomplish, what goals they had, what pain they were trying to move away from, 
And it was say anything you can possibly say to them, even if even if you're lying to them, then obviously there's a manipulative quality to that. And yeah. and so that's the tough part. But as far as, you know, giving them urgency and and those are all good things as long mm-hmm. as it's done with a positive intent. So, I mean, is there a fair and authentic way of applying urgency without coming up with false numbers or, uh, you know, wrong claims or something? Well, it would be just everything you just said, just don't make it false, right? So meaning that if you're going to tell someone, just be ethical about it and be honest and be truthful and be transparent. I mean, that's what people are looking for. So the first book I wrote was called Creating Urgency in a Non-Urgent Housing Market. This was back in 2008 when the housing market was an all-time low. And it was a a best-selling book at that time because people, you know, all the urgency came out of the housing market because prices were low and, and everything, you know, there's so much uncertainty in the marketplace. And so the whole concept of the book was, true urgency is emotional. It's the desire to improve one's life. And people will do anything to improve their life. And it doesn't matter how bad the economy is or how much uncertainty is out there. As long as they believe their life will be better off, they'll they'll do something about it. Now, but I'm presupposing right now that people are going to be honest and truthful with their claims. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, so I mean, that's the difference is that, yeah. is that, you know, urgency, again, is all about getting people to believe their life will be better if they make this decision. If they do this, something will change in their life for the better. Well, that that's that's urgency. That's emotional urgency. But again, if you're doing that with false claims, you can still create urgency. You're just doing it unethically, or you could do it with true claims, and then you're doing it ethically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, to give our listeners a more concrete example, like when you mentioned that, you know, in that book, you mentioned how to create urgency at a time when, you know, there is an economic crisis going on. And correct me if I'm wrong, what we might do, what any salesperson would do in that situation would be to stress upon the fact that, you know, the prices of the houses are at an all time low. And if you want to invest either to live in that house or, to, you know, make a profit later on, this is the best time to invest because the prices are at the lowest, right? Would you agree to that? that that's correct. That's 100% correct. So that, you know, that's obviously giving people a true claim and showing them the evidence you know, to back it up. I mean, you know, for example, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the true urgency in that case is that, you know, you get to buy a house at an all-time low. And if your goal is to improve your life, then there's no better time to improve your life than right now. And at the same time, not only do you get to improve your life, you get to improve that life at a discount. I mean, that's a great deal. I mean, that, that would be better than, than buying the house today because today that same house is you know, probably 50 to 100% more expensive in some markets than it was back in 2008. So, so that, yeah. that's the difference. But again, when it's all said and done, though, you know, people will not procrastinate on life improvement. And that's just human nature. You know, in the book, I talk about the idea of the six human needs psychology. And, you know, people always have these basic needs of certainty, variety, which is fun and change. Hmm. People need significance to feel important. They need love and connection to feel like they're connected to something bigger than themselves or family. They need to feel growth, that they're improving, and they need to have contribution to making a difference in the world. And so, you know, whenever you're working with a customer, the question is, is again, what certainty, variety, significance, love and connection, growth and contribution are they trying to move towards? You know, what do they need right now that they currently don't have? And then what you would want to do is just become the missing need. So you'd want to show how your product and service can give them that certainty, variety, significance, love and connection, growth and contribution that they currently don't have in their product and service. And if you can do that, then 
then why would they not buy immediately? So that's urgency. Again, I'm presupposing though that everyone on the podcast right now would do that with integrity and with ethics and yeah, high yeah. moral standards. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The reason I asked some of those more, you know, sensitive questions was just to make sure that any listeners who are on the call and, you know, maybe are thinking, okay, why am I listening to a sales related episode? will continue to stay on this call and, you know, find out why this is important. You know, what do you think about the kind of people who become ideal salespersons? I know that you have conducted probably, you know, hundreds or even more trainings over the years in all of America for salespeople of different organizations. So what kind of personality traits does great salesmen have or saleswomen? Well, what's interesting is I, I don't look at personality as much as I look at behavior. And so the problem with personality and all the personality assessments out there is it takes too big of a leap to show people's accuracy in sales. So for example, you know, the old school belief system was if someone is extroverted or outgoing, then therefore they would be successful in sales. And that's just mm -hmm. not really true. That's taken a huge leap that it just because I'm, I'm outgoing means that, that I will also do the necessary work in order to make the sales calls in order to say the right things to the customer in the right order and have emotional intelligence. I mean, it's just too big of a leap. And so what I look for instead is whenever I'm looking for a salesperson or training salespeople, the, the thing that separates the, the top from everyone else is number one, do they have clear goal clarity? And so goal clarity is how clear are they on their target? So who specifically are they going to sell today? What's the customer profile? What What's the certain customer in mind that they have? What's their name, their business, like be real clear on who that is. Hmm. The second part of goal clarity is their strategy. So how specifically are they going to get in front of that customer? What's their process that they're going to follow? And then the third is their pursuit. And so that is, will they take action? So people can know where they're going, they can know how to get there. But the question is, do they take action and do something about it? So that's goal clarity. The second quality is motivation. And motivation is the energy that a person has to achieve their goals. So for example, there's a lot of energy leaks out there. So you might have a salesperson who technically is in sales, but they've got a lot of energy leaks, meaning that they're thinking a lot about their paperwork or their mm. CRM, or they're thinking about account management, or they're thinking about their family, or maybe they're going through a family crisis, or Maybe they've got a side job or maybe they're thinking about, you know, office politics and other things. So they have these energy leaks. And the problem is the best salespeople, they don't have energy leaks. They're very compartmentalized with their motivation. And so when they're in the moment of selling and they're making their outbound calls and they're following up on customers, they use all of their energy towards the achievement of their goals. And then the third area is their, what I call their leashes, and their leashes are any of the resistance that holds them back from executing on what they know. And mm -hmm. so there are four types of leashes that I describe in the, the Mindset of a Sales Warrior book. And I go through these 42 strategies on how to improve goal clarity, motivation, and remove these four types of leashes. And so the first type is a story. And so mm -hmm. a story is anything external from me that I believe is preventing me from selling. So they might say, well, we're in a bad economy, so people aren't buying right now, or our competitors have a better product, and so no one's going to buy my product. Or, you know, I can already tell the customer's not interested based on or, body language and certain could, things. I mean, and so yeah. that's a story. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry to cut you short. I was just about to add that, you know, or, or a lot of the salespeople, like, I mean, they like to say that, you know, if we could only offer better prices, you know, but surely price is not the only factor that should 
make the customer switch to you rather than the other guys, right? Uh, that's correct. And so if I was coaching a salesperson, we do a lot of coaching. I mean, the big thing that separates from everyone else and why we won all these awards is we spend a lot of time removing the mental leashes that hold people back. So if I was to coach a salesperson and they were to say, you know what, we just don't have the right price. And I would say, okay, well, how many prospects right now do you feel like you've in the last, out of the last 10 prospects, how many do you feel like you've lost because you haven't had the right price? And they say, let's go through, you know, five of them. Okay. So, so you've lost five because you haven't had the right price. So what price specifically do you, you know, do you think, feel like you need? And, you know, 10% less, 15% less. And then you say, okay, great. So right now, sure, I'll give you a 10% less price, but here's the deal. You have to guarantee me and you have to put your entire job on the line that if you go offer them a 10% discount that they will buy. And if one single one of those five doesn't say yes, then you and I both have to agree that it's not a price thing, it's something else. Are you willing mm -hmm. to put your job on the line that if you cannot convince all five of those to say yes, then I will accept your resignation? And so the reason why I'm doing that is it sounds like a tough question, but I'm doing it because I want to put the locus of control back on the salesperson. And so what's happening right now is the, their locus of control is outside of them. And they think the reason why they're not successful is because of something outside of them. And so I want to put it back on them that, that they need to take full responsibility over their success. And again, 100% of the time, the salesperson will say, well, I'm not, I'm not willing to put my job on the line. Okay, so then you're able to put your job on the line. Then is it possible it's something else besides price? Well, I guess it's possible. Okay, well, let's talk about those things. And so that's an important thing. Again, it's a tough question. But, you know, to me, the best thing I can do to serve the human race is to get them to believe that, it, that they succeed or they fail. It's all on them. And every human being needs to believe that, not just a salesperson, but that it's all, everything is in a person's control. Got it. So that's the first leash that people often have to experience, the stories that they tell themselves. What are the other three? Perfect. So number one is stories. Number two is self-image. And so self-image is I don't see myself as a salesperson. I don't see that I'm capable of doing these things. I'm not, I don't have the necessary talent or capabilities to pull this off. That's not who I am. You know, I define myself as an account manager or a business development manager or a customer relationship manager or, you know, a financial advisor or a realtor. I'm not a salesperson. Well, that's an identity thing. And, and identity is a big deal. And so again, I'm one of 2000 people in the world that's a mass practitioner in neurolinguistic programming. And identity oh, nice. is a big deal in the sense that the difference between beliefs and identities is a belief is something that we think to be true over and over again. So it's a thought that we have over and over again forms our beliefs. Well, an identity mm -hmm. is something that if I was to ask a person, well, how long have you believed that? And they say something like, well, I've just believed it my whole life. I don't, I don't know when that belief started. Well, that's an identity. That's an identity. And so what we have to do in that case, we have to get them to see themselves differently or, you know, an easier one to do on the self-image one would be they don't see themselves as worthy or they don't see again that they're capable of doing that. And so I have to help them recognize that they have a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset and that anyone can learn how to sell. And it's interesting because people go, well, I don't know if that's true, Jason, because I think some people can do it and some people can't. And I'll say, okay, well, give me, give me an example of someone. They'll say, well, my daughter, you know, she's 35 years old. She's very kind of quiet and so forth. There's no way she could ever sell anything. And I say, okay, well, I want you to go back to your daughter when she was like five or six or seven. Okay. Well, how good was she at convincing you to stay up late or to have a dessert when you said no to her 
or to buy a toy or candy after you said no. Yeah, she was pretty good at that. Okay, well, then she knows how to sell. She's been doing it since she was born. It's just sometime along the way, she was told not to do it and her identity was formed that she's not capable of it. And that's, that's a big thing for everyone to write down on how much that changes things. Because if you think about when someone's having, let's say a bad mood, you know, and they, they seem kind of angry, you know, you would say, okay, well, that's a mood. They're, in a, they're having a mood right now. And it's a couple of days or in a mood. Well, then all of a sudden that mood, that bad, that angriness turns into, you know, maybe several weeks or several months, maybe a year. Well, all of a sudden we'll say, okay, that's a person's personality temperament. That's their temperament. They have a temperament of being angry. Well, if that temperament lasts for several years, it will turn into their personality. Right. That's interesting, right? right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so personality, that's why personality is a very slippery slope. We got to be very careful when we lock on to personality because, again, when we lock on to personality, we're presupposing that that's fixed and that that's who we are in our very core. And I just don't believe that. I believe that that everyone is enough and everyone is capable of doing anything they want to do in their life if they want it bad enough and if they're willing to do the work to change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I do agree with you on that. And I would like you to mention the other two leashes as well. But just to clarify my point, so for instance, let's say there is a company out there and they know that they might need to hire, you know, a company like FPG for training their salespeople and, you know, improving their behaviors or changing their behaviors, right? But what do they need to do to hire the best people that are out there who need the least nudge to change their behavior? Does that make sense? Well, if I'm understanding this question correctly, you're saying, are we saying, what do we need to do to find those people or what do we need to do to change their behavior? Sure. You know, my original question was, what are the ideal personality types or personality traits, for instance, for anyone to become a great salesperson, right? Now, you said, and rightly so, that, you know, we shouldn't be focusing on the personality traits and that kind of things because anyone can learn sales, anyone can become a sales expert. But what I'm saying is that, for instance, if I want to work with FPG, right, to improve the sales performance of our sales team, what kind of people should I hire so that it's easier to get them changed through a company like FPG? So again, the, the, yeah, so the people you need to hire are people who are highly goal-oriented, highly motivated, Got it. and unleashed, and I would also say procedural-based. Hmm. So those would be the, the, the four qualities that I would, I would look for. So if you look at, going back to the, the four types of leashes, so again, you have story, self-image. The third one is a reluctance. And a reluctance is nothing more than a fear. And we have an assessment that, that we can offer people to figure out their levels of reluctance. There's 16 different types of reluctances, stage fright, you know, mm-hmm. uh, asking for the person to purchase, taking control of the sale, uh, selling to upmarket clientele like the C-suite, friends and family selling. There's different reluctances that people have. And so we can give, them a, give people an assessment that can show them which one they have. And then we have workshops and programs to remove those, those reluctances. And then the fourth type of leash is a rule. And a rule is anything I need to see, feel, or hear that gives myself permission to engage and to move forward. So for example, you know, the, again, this is really outdated and it's really horrible that people are taught this stuff, but they're taught stuff like look for buying signals. So for example, if a person is smiling, they must be interested. If they're asking questions, they must be interested. Well, you got to be really careful with that stuff because, because I, you know, pe- there's a lot of people that have bought that aren't very happy that are that that don't smile. I mean, I know a lot of C-level executives 
that just don't smile. They're just very serious type people. And so if you're waiting for them to smile, you're going to lose a sale. Or if you're waiting for them to ask questions, you're going to lose a sale. So you got to be really careful about these different rules, you know, that, that we put into play. You know, I, I, I must follow up with a buyer five times before I can ask them to buy. I mean, come on, like, has anyone sold someone by not doing that? I mean, so we got to be careful of those rules. And then the last is procedural based, which you were talking, you said, what are the four kind of traits? And procedural means that I'm a salesperson that's disciplined enough to follow a specific process. So this is what's called a meta program. So the way that our brains work, we had these different kind of meta programs and people are either optional based or procedural based. And so think of an optional based as every customer is different. It depends on the situation. I really go with the flow of things. I need to kind of figure it out person by person. A procedural based mindset person in anything is I follow a very disciplined process. And every time I follow it, the sale happens or the score takes care of itself. And, you know, the most successful companies are very procedural based. I mean, look like Chick-fil-A or Southwest Airlines. I mean, they're all very procedural based. They don't they don't change things very often and they follow a certain set of steps in order to make make success happen. And so again, those are the four traits, the highly goal-oriented, motivated to focus and prospect, unleashed, and then procedural-based are the four that I look for. Got it. And in terms of people who, you know, companies which follow a strict procedure, don't you think that it kind of kills the creativity and innovation as well? I mean, that, that would definitely be the debate on the other side, right? So, you know, I don't see it that way. I mean, my argument to that would be that the best artists have a foundation of science. So the reason why Michelangelo was able to create the David statue, this perfect specimen of the human body, was because he was a scientist first. If he did not understand human anatomy and follow the process of creating great art, you would have never had that. We would have never known who Michelangelo is. And so there's not a, I mean, you know, Richard Branson would be considered a great artist. Elon Musk would be considered a great artist, but they're scientists first. And so my opinion is I think great creativity comes from a foundation of great science. And that's true. I mean, look, my son Saunders, you know, he is 11 years old and he, you know, loves music and wants to, you know, play the piano, but I can't get the kid to focus on learning the keys on how to play the piano. He just wants to be creative and make up his own songs. Well, his songs sound like crap. Well, that's because he won't learn how to play the piano. He won't learn the keys and what music is supposed to sound like. Well, once he learns that, or if he has the motivation to do that, well, then he can be liberated yeah. to create his own art. But you can't create your own art until you have a foundation of great structure and science. Yeah, that is an excellent example because, I mean, it's like knowing the rules and having that foundation before you go on to try something which may, you know, sound crazy or, you know, which is kind of innovative or unorthodox, right? Well, and to further provide evidence for that, do you know that over 90% of all businesses, all entrepreneurs are artists more than integrators? But mm -hmm. the reason why majority of those businesses do not make it to a million dollar a year business or higher is because they don't have an integrator. They don't relinquish the control to an operations person to, to create systems and processes to scale their art. And so, I mean, that it's an interesting thing. Majority of business owners would be more on the artist side, but the reason why majority of businesses fail is because they don't create procedures to scale their art. 
That's a very interesting statistic. And we at our uh, agency have been focusing more on the processes side. I have yet to found an integrator, but I have been following the um, uh, traction books model, the um, entrepreneurial operating system. Have you heard of it? Yeah, of course. And so, you know, the idea that I'm talking about here, because that's a stat from Traction and their sequel book called Rocket Fuel, the whole idea of a visionary and an integrator. I, I, I kind of blend them all together because I've read Scaling Up and Traction and Good to Grade and Great yeah. by Choice and, and then Tony Robbins' Business Mastery where, you know, he, so I, I kind of kind of blend them all together. And I use the term artist and integrator more so than visionary and integrator. Yeah. And so in our company, what we do, and again, we we're the fastest growing sales training company based on Inc. for the last four years and a best place to work in Fort Worth out of 80,000 companies the last four years. And what we do is we label people in the organization that you're either an artist or an integrator. So, for example, every artist in our company has an integrator that helps them. You know, or think of it like is, you know, if you're a fighter pilot, you've got the pilot and you've got the navigator. Yeah. You know, in, in Top Gun, you've got Maverick and Goose. And that's the idea is that you need an artist, but, you, but every artist has to have an integrator. And so a salesperson, for example, like our entire sales team, they all have integrator support. So I just want them making phone calls. I want them pitching. I want them, you know, learning about the customer, but, but they have integrator support that keeps their, their pipeline full and their CRM full. And so every morning, the integrator's job is to make sure before the integrator goes to bed that night is to plan for the next day who the salesperson is going to call. So that's, they're, they're the navigator. I mean, they're the navigator of my sales team. And same thing with our training department, our consulting department. My trainers are focused solely on training, teaching, and learning how to be better for their clients. They don't book their own travel. They don't, they don't organize things. We have an integrator support team that tells them the order of the training that the client's supposed to go through. And, you know, they just show up and do their job. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. And I hope to have you again on the podcast show sometime to talk more about that. You mentioned reluctance, and that's something which is very interesting because one of the reluctance I experience while speaking to a warm lead is, you know, finding out how to qualify them. You know, I feel that, that hesitance and shyness. So what should I do in that sort of a situation while qualifying a sales lead? Well, what I teach in, in our process of called warrior selling, and we've got, we teach the idea of we want to categorize the buyer and we categorize the buyer with a series of questions. So the first question you would categorize them with is you would say, great. So based upon your current situation of wanting to do blank and wanting to stop doing blank, have you definitely decided to make a change? And they're either going to say yes or no to that. And if they say, yes, we definitely have to be different. Well, then now they're what's called a category two. And then a category two buyer is someone who's definitely going to make a change, but they're overwhelmed with all of the options. And so for them, you want to narrow it down for them. And then a category three is someone who is torn between, you know, a couple of different options with you or you and a competitor, but they're definitely going to do something. And so you have to kind of help them through that process and get them to a point of resolution and compromise. And so, you know, one, I would kind of change the question from qualifying to categorizing because hmm. I think it's easier. But, you know, to me, once you've learned how to ask the question, which is, have you definitely decided that you're going to make a change, but you still feel reluctant to ask that question, you know, I would, I mean, there's several things that we can teach you to do with, that are taught in the book, but you know, one, one is a very simple concept and that is, well, what's the worst thing that's going to happen if you ask them that question? Yeah. And then, you know, your response could be, well, I think that they're, they might get offended by that. Okay. Well, what, what would cause you to believe they would be offended by that? You know, what's their goal? What's their intention? Well, their intention is the customer's intention is they want to 
speed up their business. They, you know, all businesses desire speed and profitability, all of them. I mean, every business owner, every, everyone is trying to increase speed and profitability in their organization. And so we know that to be true. And so, you know, by asking the customer, you know, have you decided to make a change? All you're doing is clarifying where their ambiguity lies. And ambiguity is the most crippling disease of the human race. People are constantly procrastinating to being stuck and they're putting off their own life improvement. And the more they put it off, the more they can't get life improvement or their competition is going to, you know, is going to take them out. And so, you know, I just feel like it's very honorable and noble to ask a person a question that gets them unstuck or clarifies where the resistance is. And then, you know, so that, so I just would, I would kind of, if I was to coach you, I would do a lot of questioning with you because the more you question a limiting belief, the more you weaken it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how does high ticket sales differ than, you know, more economical items? Is it natural, for instance, to expect that the sales cycle for, you know, a six-figure project or product or something is going to be way longer than a much cheaper project, for instance, or a product? I mean, it just, it depends on, on where the leash is coming from. So it is a more expensive product or service that you're selling. Could it possibly take longer? It could, but that's because there are more people involved in the process that you have to get to and you have to sell multiple stakeholders. Right. So th that's really where the kind of the dilemma lies is that, you know, if you're selling to one person, then you're just having to take that one person through the process. But if you're having to sell to a committee, you know, or you're having to sell one to the, you know, some sort of assistant that's getting information, you have to convince them and you have to get them on board. You have to categorize them and then you get them to the point of getting you in front of the next person. And then, and then you have to categorize that person. And so you, so that's the only difference is that it requires you to treat every person in front of you almost like a new sale. And that's, that by the way, is a huge thing I want everyone to pay attention to the big mistake that a lot of salespeople make when they're doing the complex sale, selling to multiple stakeholders is they go, you know what, if I can't talk to the one who can make a decision, I won't even try. Well, that's, that's just dumb. If you think about it, because you're going to miss so many opportunities because it's, it's nearly impossible in a lot of cases to get directly in front of the main decision maker out of the gate. And so my whole thing is whomever I can talk to is my customer, whomever I can, I don't care if they're an entry level person that has zero authority whatsoever, they've got some sort of influence. Yeah. And so my job is to convince them that they're willing to put me in front of the next person in charge. And so I'm going to sell that person. I'm just going to keep selling up the chain of command until I can get to the one that can, you know, that can afford me. The last thing I'll say from an advice perspective on, on selling, even though this book is all about mindset here. So this is more, we have a different concept around process, but mm -hmm. the other mistake people make when they're selling to businesses is you need to sell the most you can to the person in front of you. So for example, a lot of people have some, you know, I don't know, several hundred thousand dollar product or service, but the person in front of you only has spending power, only has a budget, let's say that's $25,000 without, without any other approval. They can spend 25 grand. That's it. Right. Well, you come in guns blazing with a $200,000 product or service. Well, you got to get through several layers before you can sell them anything. And so with the, by the time you get to the final person that can decide that, People could be turned over. You could have lost the person in front of you versus if you sell to the person in front of you, what, then now you're inside the company. Right. You know, you sell them something inside. Yeah, yeah. Well, now you're inside the company. Well, now you're a vendor. 
Now you've got, you know, an account inside of them. And then you can, of course, upsell to higher levels. So that's a big tip that I would recommend that people yeah. make mistakes. They just sell the most you can to the person in front of you. Yeah, that's an excellent tip. So like, you know, not focusing on just the biggest or the most premium service or product, but also having upsell, downsell, cross-sell options, right? Correct. Yeah. So again, it's, it's about finding out, you know, after you have rapport with them and understand what their goals are, you need to at some point find out what spending authority do they have? So what spending authority do they have? Yeah. And every employee has a certain spending authority level without running it by someone else. And, and you really just got to look at it as, well, I need to do my best to tailor a product or service to their spending level. And if I can get them to, you know, to use that budget today without having to get prior approval, then now I'm in the company and now I can, I can do anything after that. So that's a big, you know, a big thing. And, and for everyone listening right now, you know, we've, the Mindset of a Sales Warrior book, we are offering it for free. All people have to do is pay shipping and handling. So if they go to warriormindsetbook.com, then they can get the book for free. We'll send it to them immediately, then get access to the ebook. They just have to pay shipping and handling, which is like 10 bucks or less. And, but then on top of that, there's all kinds of other offers in there, like an audiobook and meditations and hypnosis. There's a leash assessment. There's all kinds of coaching that I do. There's all kinds of things they can also get in there as well. That's awesome. In terms of training, I hope you still have a few minutes because I do have a few more questions. Well, okay? Yeah, as long as you want to talk. Sounds good. So regarding your, you know, the trainings that you guys offer, is it like an event-based thing where, you know, people come and they, you know, attend a two-day event and then, you know, they, they go back to their lives where, you know, everything is still the same and then they go back to doing things the way they're used to doing? That's a great question. So when I started my company nine years ago, what I did is I looked up the definition of training and, and I was a corporate trainer before that. And, and the definition of training is to change behavior. And I, I couldn't find one single example of a training company that had, that had evidence that they could change behavior, but there are hundreds of thousands of individual human beings out there that call themselves trainers and, you know, thousands of companies that call themselves training companies. And so what I decided to do was figure out how do you train, change behavior? Well, the previous book that I wrote is called WTF, which stands for Why Training Fails. And it's $164 billion spent every year on training, but 70% fails reaches ROI. And so I wrote a book on how we became in the 30% and how we've sustained that. And so one of the key factors is learning is a through time process. Important thing people write down, learning is a through time process. So for example, if you were to go to that one day event, well, within a couple of days, you're going to forget everything that you've just learned. And so we, we learn best through experiences. Like, for example, if everyone was to get on a plane right now, and all of a sudden over the loudspeaker, someone said, hey, this is Jason from Southwest Airlines. And I just went through a two-day event where I got certified on how to fly a plane. And I know exactly how to do this. And you guys just buckle up for safety. It's my first flight. I mean, you guys would all get off the plane, right? Which is nuts. And so, you know, to learn how to fly a plane, there's a through-time process. I mean, they, they have, you know, thousands of hours where they have to be in flight simulators and have a flight instructor. And, and they have ongoing certifications and training. And, you know, and so that's how we have to look at anything. And and specifically, I focus on sales and I focus on leadership. We've got several programs on executive leadership and coaching and managing. But everything we do is a program-based approach, not an event-based approach. We will not take on a client if they if they hire us for events. We'll do a event to get them to understand what we're doing and to see the value in it. But, but we don't have any event-based clients. We only have program-based clients. 
So how does the programs look like? I mean, is it all taking place in a physical location? Is it like, you know, video lectures or webinars? Sure. So the, the combination is, number one, there's assessments. So we always need to kind of assess where we are and our mindset and our behaviors and our beliefs. And so that's number one is assessments. Number two is there is some sort of seminar or event workshops that kick off the ideas. Got it. Then number three is that they watch a video every week that takes the learning and chunks it down into something specific and behavioral that they can do, you know, that weekly basis. And they practice that internally. They're coached on it by their manager. And then they get on a, a Zoom call where they can practice it and specifically talk about real life situations. So what's different about us is that if you were to get on one of our follow-up Zoom calls, it's not just talking in theory about, hey, what'd you get out of the lesson? What do you think about it? We don't do that. What we do is let's talk specifically about a customer that you're working and let's talk about how to apply this technique and let's get you prepared. So when you call the customer up, you know exactly how to move the sale forward. So mm -hmm. ours is very tactical and it's very specific. And, and so because of that, uh, we have clients like yesterday, I was talking to a client that their sales are up 35% year over year in a very down market in their industry. And they're in big commercial $250,000 commercial machines and with less people. And mm. he told me that, that my company only spends a couple hours a week with their, their sales team. But he said he would double it because where most people think it's a waste of their time to be on a training call. He said, every time my, my salespeople are on those calls with your training team, our sales immediately move forward. Like we, we get immediate success off of those calls on a weekly basis, which is what, I mean, which is what people are paying for, right? They're not paying yeah. for a book study. They're paying to, to improve. Right, right. That's very good. So what are some key tools that you and your team use during workshops or seminars or do Zoom calls to, you know, keep everyone entertained and engaged? You did mention, you know, about talking about, you know, like, I guess it's kind of role playing that you mentioned that, you know, okay, let's practice this sales problem that you have. How are you going to speak to them? But is there anything else that you guys do? Well, I mean, so the big thing that we like to describe ourselves as we are a how-based training company, not a what and why-based training company. So for example, here's a cool thing for everyone to think about is when you were a kid, how many times did your parents or teachers tell you to, hey, focus more, concentrate more, pay attention? I mean, all the time, you know, parents are telling that to their kids. But then you ask the same audience, how often did your teachers or parents tell you how to focus, how to concentrate, how, you know, they never, yeah. well, the same thing goes with most training companies and most managers. And if we ask a manager, how often do you tell your salespeople that they, they've got to sell more all the time? How often do you tell them they should ask better questions? Sorry, understand the customer's needs all the time. How often do you tell them to hey, sell value all the time? How often do you tell them to, did you ask the person to buy again? I need you to close more all the time. But when was the last time you told them how to do that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and this also crickets. Yeah, absolutely. Crickets. And this also connects to your, you know, idea about uh, the leashes and the, the stories that we tell ourselves. I mean, if I'm not focusing on what I can do and how I can do it and how I can do it better, and instead I'm focusing on, you know, some external things that I cannot control or, or some kind of self-image issues that I have that I keep, you know, telling myself in my mind and everything, then, you know, that's only increasing the problem, right? It's not solving anything. That That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. So, what you have to do, though, is, again, the formula that we created that's a very trademark formula now is performance equals knowledge minus leashes. And so performance is what a person does. That's their performance. Knowledge is what they've been asked to do 
are taught to do and a leash is anything that's preventing them from doing it. So let's say we teach a salesperson, hey, you need to, so first you got to give them the knowledge. So we teach them, hey, ask the customer what's holding them back from choosing you. Great question. You learn a lot of information from it. You figure out where their ambiguity lies. Therefore, you can handle the concerns, give them certainty and move the sale forward. Okay, so I feel, I get it. Pretty simple question. What's stopping you from asking that question? That's a great coaching question. What's stopping you from asking that question? Well, then you're going to identify one of the leashes and it could be a story or they say, well, I can just tell you right now they're not going to buy because, you know, they, they just, it's a tough economy and, you know, it's just, they're just not going to buy right now. Or, or they're going to, they said they're going to wait until the next budget cycle before they can do anything. Okay. Story, self-image. I don't know. I just don't feel like asking that question. I don't feel like I, it's really kind of the kind of question I feel comfortable asking. It doesn't feel authentic to me. That would be self-image. The a reluctance would be, I feel like I'm going to come across too pushy and too mm. salesy if I ask that question. So I'm just not going to ask it. Or it could be a rule. And that is, well, I really need to, I feel like I need to earn the right to ask that question. And I really need to, you know, spend more time with them. And I was only able to spend like 15, 20 minutes with them, you know, when they had to get off the phone. And so I just, I don't, I need to spend at least 45 minutes before I can ask that question. That would be a rule. Right. And so I would figure out first by asking the question, what's stopping you from asking that question? And then I would identify if it's a story, self-image, reluctance, or rule. And then from there, we would do the the necessary practices to get them to see that differently. Right, right. You did mention meditation and, and I believe MP3 audio clips or something like that. So do you think that to be in that right state of mindset, because we cannot be 100% motivated every single day, right? I mean, are there any kind of rituals that you do or that you suggest your clients to do in order to be in the best state of mind for, you know, peak performance? Well, I, I believe a person could be 100% motivated 100% of the time. I, I don't know why they couldn't, as long as they're doing the necessary practices. Now, the reason why they're not motivated is because of something of how they started their day or they're not doing the necessary practice. But I mean, I wake up every morning at 4.30 and I have specific rituals that I do to get myself in a certain frame of mind. I mean, so just a, a cool thing for everyone to learn right now is that, you know, we have two parts of our brain. We've got our conscious mind and our subconscious mind. Well, our conscious mind is about 5% of our, our thoughts. Sorry, mm -hmm. decisions come from our conscious mind. 95% come of our subconscious mind. Well, if you're not achieving the goals that you want out of your conscious mind, well, that's because your subconscious mind is incongruent with that. And about 70% of our programming happens in our subconscious mind by the age of seven. And that's why the co-founder of the Jesuits would say, that give me a child for seven years, I'll never leave the church. And mm -hmm. so the reason why we are constantly not achieving our goals or we have these leashes is, or we lack motivation or whatever that is, it's, it's because something in our subconscious mind is holding us back. So an easy way to look at that is whatever you think about like the cloud in today's computing systems, right? So whatever you upload into your cloud, you download into your reality. Hmm. Whatever you upload into your cloud, you download into your reality. And so what I'm constantly doing is reprogramming my hard drive, my mental computer, my subconscious to make sure that I'm uploading the right things, the most productive things that I want to do that day. I'm uploading that into my cloud in the morning through rituals and the night through hypnosis and meditations so that I can download that into my reality. So you can start that with daily practices. And there's a lot of science to prove that. I mean, when you're first waking up, yeah. You're in usually a theta stage, which is a transformational yeah. stage. It's where your subconscious is most susceptible to programming. And then alpha, which is light trance. And then, you know, beta, which is, I consider that to be beast mode or baller mode. And, but you, you, the best programming happens before you go to bed at night 
or when you're waking up in the morning. And so you can do that through, you know, different meditation tracks. And, and I, I have those, I have those for salespeople. That's one of my certifications is in hypnosis. That's very nice. Very interesting. Now, you know, your company FPG was termed as one of the best places in America to work at, right? By Inc. Magazine. So was that an accident or was that planned? Any tips for any business owners out there who want to create, you know, ideal workplaces? I mean, everything has to be intentional, you know, yeah. that people all the time tell me, you know, I really want a great culture and, or they'll say, you know what, I don't have a culture, Jason. I'm like everyone has a culture. It just might not be intentional for you, but you have a culture, yeah. I promise. And a culture is <laughs> yeah. nothing more than my definition of culture is what happens behind the boss's back. And so meaning that if the owner of the company or the sales manager or the CEO or whomever is in charge of that department or that company, if they're right next to the employee, what are they doing? How are they operating? Well, I assume they're doing everything you would want them to do. Well, when you're not around, what are they doing? Well, if they're doing the same thing when you're not around as when you are around, that's the culture you want. If they're doing different things when you're not around that are unproductive and not what you want them to do, and that's the culture you don't want. And so you just have to be very intentional you know, about doing that. And so we also do a lot of psychology in our culture, give people purpose, we give people meaning. You know, We focus our culture a lot around the six human needs. So how does our culture give them certainty, safety, variety, fun, significance, make them feel important, love and connection, growth? Do they feel like they're improving contribution? They make a difference in the world. They have purpose and higher meaning. And so, you know, we're really big on that. And, and you know, the big thing, I mean, I'm always, I mean, I've interviewed, we've won the last four years in a row for best place to work in Fort Worth. And people always ask me like, yeah. So they, they ask me a lot, you know, about this concept. And I just tell people, look, the first thing is, you know, we're a best place to work for people who want to be a part of our culture. So we hire, you know, we're very transparent with the kind of culture we have and we hire for that. At the same time, we're very clear for people, very clear that if you are detracting from this culture and you don't want to be a part of this culture, then we don't want you here either. So we're very hardcore on that. So where a lot of people will just kind of tolerate, a lot of companies will just tolerate the people who don't want to work there. I mean, we had we had a story one time that was a high producer, high producing marketing person. And we were doing a quarterly meeting and had a dinner and we were all going out to go bowling and have dinner and so forth. And she was overheard by one of her peers telling her husband that she has to go to this dumb company party and outing tonight. Well, her peers came to the president of the company, Mary Marshall, ratted her out and said, here's what she said. Immediately, she was brought into Mary's office and Mary let her go that day. She was a high producer too, but we said, we don't care. You, are, you, will not be, you will not be a virus in our culture. And I don't care how successful you are in this place. We're looking for successful, doing the right things and wanting to be a part of this place. And that's, you know, look, we spend majority of our life with people at work, majority of our life with people at work. Yeah. And so that's the reason why I created a culture like this is I spend more time with these people than I do, I do my friends you know, or my kids. And so I want to be around people that I want to be around. And I think most people want to be this, have the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it shouldn't be a place which, you know, the employees are afraid of going to or are not excited about, right? It should be something that they wake up in the morning, they say, okay, I have to go there and I have these, you know, lovely friends or colleagues and I'm going to be there and they will be supporting me and I'll be supporting them and we are going to do something great together. Yeah, correct. I mean, that, that's the whole idea is you want to have a culture where people want to be there versus have to be there. 
And again, we're very clear with that. We tell people all the time, if you do not want to be here, then that's okay. We want you to be transparent and honest with us and we will give you grace and we will help you find a better job and we will refer you to a better fit that you would like to be a part of. Now, if you don't want to be here and it affects your work performance and it starts to show in your work performance, then you will be let go. But if you don't want to be here, go ahead and tell us as early as possible and we will do the right thing for you and we will help you find a better place to work. That seems quite fair. So speaking about workplace culture, Jason, we are going to wrap this up in just a couple of minutes, but do you have any favorite books or podcasts or any other material on creating that excellent culture, the kind that you have and which has got you guys so much recognition for it? Yeah, that's a great question. It is fun by uh, Google's... Uh, you know, I, I mean, Patrick... Yeah, go on. Sorry. I mean, those are all great. I mean, definitely. I mean, I think the best thing to do is think about who are great, who are considered to be great cultures. I mean, Google... Yeah you know, the best places to work in America. And, you know, I would check them out. I mean, 1-800-GOT-JUNK is a great culture, I've been told. You know, Container Store is a great culture. Google supposedly is a great culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I would just, I would check into them. I mean, also the work by Patrick Lencioni, you know, he's got a lot of books on culture. He's got one called The Advantage. I and mean, there's a lot of, we've got programs and we've got a program called Executive Playbook that will measure the impact. It's, it's an assessment. It's an amazing assessment. It won the most innovative leadership development program in the world by a Stevie Award last year. And it was where we will measure. We will make sure to include its link in the show notes as well. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So it, it will measure the impact. It will measure the culture that you currently have. It'll measure the impact of your leadership team. And then there, there's a, it's a 15 lesson program that's done two lessons a month with assessments and workshops and so forth on working with the leaders to show them how to be better legacy-based leaders and to become leaders that people want to follow. And it's very evidence-based and it's very, you know, tactical. Sounds good. And any books that you can suggest on the art of selling or, you know, behavior change and having the right mindset? Well, that would be my book, The Mindset of a Sales Warrior. <laughs> so, so what, <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, so what I did, just, just in case everyone wants to know, I mean, I, I kind of did the work for everyone. So when you read my book, in the book, I, you know, I refer to Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset, which is a book. I refer to Daniel Coyle and the book Talent Code. I mean, there's so many books that I talk about and when it comes to habits. And so I've read a ton of books on their philosophies on how to change behavior. And then I took those and I put them as individual strategies inside the book. So my book is kind of like an executive summary of about 100 other books on behavioral change. That's awesome. And I will definitely be ordering my copy pretty soon. This is it for today. Jason, thank you so much for being on this show. I know that I took a lot of your time, but I hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did. I'm sure that our listeners are going to learn so much about sales and mindset and everything else that you talked about. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? The best way, again, is to go to either fpg.com. So FPG stands for Forest Performance Group, and that's our training company. They definitely can get a hold of me there. Also, if they go to the warriormindsetbook.com is where they can get a copy of the book or jasonforest.ceo is my personal speaker page. But again, I really encourage everyone to check out the book warriormindsetbook.com. And again, check out the meditations, the hypnosis. And you know, I really do some cool stuff in there about getting inside of people's subconscious mind and helping them remove the leashes that are holding them back from from earning what they're truly worth. And, you know, I've never met a a single human being when I've asked them the question, you know, are you earning what you're truly worth? Not one single person's ever told me, yep, I'm earning (laughs) what I'm truly worth. I mean, everyone's worth more. Everyone's capable of more. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jason. And I look forward to having you on the show again. Thank you for listening. For show notes and other resources, please refer to the description of the show.